Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Feminifesto podcast. In this episode, Vaishnavi and I speak to Dr. Ann Tickner, an Anglo-American feminist international relations theorist. Dr. Tickner served as the president of the International Studies Association from 2006 to 2007. Though she was not the first female president of the ISA, she was the first feminist international relations theorist to head the ISA. After 15 years as a professor of international relations at the University of South California, Dr. Tickner became a distinguished scholar in residence at the School of International Services, American University, Washington DC. On June 4, 1999, Dr. Tickner received an honorary doctorate from the Faculty of Social Sciences at Uppsala University, Sweden. Her books include Gendering World Politics, Issues and Approaches in the Post-Cold War Era, and Gender and International Relations: Feminist Perspectives on Achieving International Security. Vaishnavi and I enjoyed putting this episode together, and we truly hope listening to it gives you as much joy as recording it did for us. Hello Dr. Tikna, thank you so much for joining us on the Feminifesto podcast. As students of yours and as people who have learned from your variety of work, it's really an honor to have you on the podcast today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Um I really enjoy um doing this kind of thing and I particularly enjoy um connecting with students who are not in the United States who are far away as that's very nice and it's very gratifying to know that my work can be useful um to students overseas so I'm very happy that you invited me and thank you Thank you so much for your time Dr Tikna So let's begin. Um can you tell us about your initial years in the field of international relations and security studies? What motivated your pursuit of a career in this field? Well actually my uh, motivation started very early in life probably when I was about 7 years old because I was in <clears throat> London during the um Second World War and experienced slightly bombing and that really sent me on a path to think about about war and, and how we could prevent such thing from happening again after the war uh we moved to the united states because my father got a job with the united nations and in those days everybody had great hopes for the united nations as being something that could really foster peace in the world so I I didn't formally I I I got a master's degree in international relations um, from Yale in 1960 but and I took some time off but my my also my motivation and when I I took some time off to um raise my three children and which was more common in those days and then when i went back uh uh to do a phd it wasn't until 1976 and the year before i did that i spent a year in geneva switzerland and sat in on a course taught by johan galtung who is an eminent norwegian peace researcher and so i think that my entry into uh international relations and security studies is really more about my interest in peace studies um i use a kind of golden framework for my dissertation 
And then later on, I founded um, a peace studies program at uh, Holy Cross College in um, Massachusetts. Uh, uh, and so I really saw myself in the early stages, uh, yes, teaching basic international relations, but really my specialty uh, was peace studies. That was before I got into um, what I've been doing since about 1989 uh, or 90. I taught a lot of, um, you know, in those days teaching international relations, it was during the Cold War and we were expected to teach a lot of strategic theory and, um, and a lot about nuclear weapons and so forth. And I began to notice that many of my women students, this is in my Introduction to International Relations course, which everybody taught in, 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 in the department. They, they just didn't seem very comfortable with this material. They didn't seem uh, that interested and they just didn't think they were going to do very well. So I just happened to start reading on my own, um, sort of thinking about IR theory and what it, what it was, talking about it was talking about security mostly at that time uh realists were kind of the predominant paradigm and it was really about security during the cold war and power politics and i there was absolutely nothing to read in feminist work and of course that was you know i started doing that in 1990 so i went and i just happened to read a book by uh, Evelyn Fox Keller, uh, which was called Reflections on Gender and Science. Keller was a physicist, and she argued that physics or the natural sciences were gendered, both in the questions they asked and the way they went about solving them. And I began to think that I read some other feminist philosophers, but nothing in international relations because there wasn't anything. I began to think that you could apply some of her claims about theory uh, to international relations theory. And so I got in into what I have done ever since in a rather sort of backdoor way in the sense that there was nothing in the field. So reading other things, being motivated by students who wanted a broader, different kind of look at international relations because it was really so much of it was about um, security meaning really meaning um, military security political security power politics and as I say I was coming at it from more of a peace uh, research um, framework and it's always interested me that peace research has always been much lower down the food chain so to speak um, in the discipline of international relations. You know, the big guys do strategic theory and then peace studies is not well funded. Now it's almost disappearing. And it, it's interesting. I think that's very gendered too, when, when I think about it. Um, so that's really how I got started. And then the first piece I wrote, um, feminist reformulation of Hans Morgenthau's six principles of political realism suggesting that 
Morgenthau wasn't necessarily wrong, but there were other ways of looking at the world besides uh, what he did. That article has been much uh, cited since. Um, and that was really my first statement. Uh, and I, since then, I've been trying to bring feminist theory to um, the attention of the mainstream or have, have conversations about it, as I call it. So that's really uh, my motivation and my start. Thank you so much for sharing about your journey, Dr. Tikna. And I'm so grateful that you did because young women like Vaishnavi and myself have been able to have a career in this space thanks to the foundation you set in motion. Um, so on that note, you entered the domain when there were fewer women in the field than there are today. Um, could you take us through some of your key challenges at the time? Well, that was certainly a challenge. Um, although I very fortunately, I, as I said, I taught at this um, Jesuit college um, called the College of the Holy Cross. And when I joined the department, it was actually half women, which is very unusual. The political science department, we always had a woman chair all the time that I was there. And so I didn't really suffer too much in my uh, work environment. However, I did have some uh, interesting bumps along the way to get there. Um, when I went to interview, um, well, I should back up and say my, my husband, um, Hayward Alka, uh, was pretty well known in the field. And since he, he started his career much earlier than I did, he was already quite well known. And so my big problem was not being seen as him. He, he did, he'd written a book um, called Mathematics and Politics, and I'm a complete loser at mathematics, so it wasn't anything I would have done. But when I went for my interview for uh, <clears throat> my graduate school, uh, the professor who interviewed me looked at me and he said, well, you want, wouldn't want to come here because we are not strong in Hayward's field. And so I said, well, I'm not very strong in his field either, so maybe it would work out just fine. So constantly when I started my career, uh, people just saw me as a kind of reflection of my husband. Somebody suggested maybe I was getting a PhD so that I could help him with his work. So that was really something where very, very few women, as I say, I, my department was unusual, but very, very few women in the field. Um, so the big challenge was going to professional meetings. Um, and you could really count the number of women who did international relations there on one hand, I guess it was, it, it was not good. I remember one particularly dreadful event. It was a big professional meeting and my thesis supervisor had actually asked me if I would step in. It was on this big panel and he couldn't go. So I ended up on this uh, panel and, and it was all famous men. So the room was absolutely packed. And I sat at the table with all these men and they all spoke. The chair introduced them all with a bio of what they'd done. And he had not even bothered to ask me what my name was. So after he'd called on all the men, he looked down to the end of the table and said, oh yes, 
And we have, uh, sorry, I don't seem to remember your name. No bio, no nothing about me. That was one of, and I was so angry that I, I really behave that way, but I was so angry that I just, I kind of didn't give the speech I prepared. I just launched into what was wrong with international relations. It was all white men in ties. And that after that event, some women came up to me and said, wow, you were so brave. That was just what we think. And, you know, so that was that was a big moment. And I, I think that was the only time I've actually really kind of blasted the profession. But it was just the rudeness of the fact that I was on this panel and he hadn't even bothered to find out my name before the chair, before doing the introductions. And that's sort of how you were treated out in the big world of professional life. Thank you so much for taking us through that, Dr. Tikna, and for sharing that anecdote. And as Keithi said earlier, truly the opportunities and space that we are able to access today is all thanks to the work and emotional labor of giants like yourself. But I'm curious to know how much of these challenges have changed today. Would you say that they remain the same? Um, no, I don't think they remain the same. Uh, uh, I also think you have to divide up between women who do international relations and women who do feminist international relations. Uh, there are a lot of very prominent women now in the field of international relations. Um, you know, there are Harvard, Princeton, you know, the, I mean, I, I'm mostly talking about the US, I'm afraid, because that's what I'm familiar with. Uh, actually, it's better overseas. I have spent some time in Australia, and I, I think women are even more accepted there. But, um, but I think the struggle still comes when you're talking about feminist international relations. That's just, it's, uh, I don't know, it's just, there's just something that, you know, I could talk about later that uh, I think makes that more difficult. I think it's more difficult inside the United States. I, I think from my limited experience overseas that uh, it is more accepted uh, in other countries. Thank you for sharing your observations with that, uh, Dr. Bickner. So I'm gonna shift from your journey a little bit to your work. And one of your key arguments has been to take on the notion that feminists should not develop scientific or falsifiable theories. Um, could you elaborate a bit on this? Mm -hmm. Well, this is an, uh, a conversation I've been trying to have with the mainstream for many, many years. I, I sort of gave it up about 10 years ago and moved on to something else because I wasn't getting very far. Um, and I'm not saying that all feminists should uh, do not use um, mainstream positivist um, falsifiable theories, scientific theories. I'm just saying that there are certain things in the world that we want to understand and they are just not amenable uh, to this kind of theorizing. Interestingly, some of the most successful uh, feminists in the United States, uh, and I only mean successful in the sense that they get published in the mainstream journals, which isn't everything, but it's 
it, it's interesting that it happens are feminists who use a uh, quantitative scientific approach. They don't seem to have any much trouble getting in the uh, top journals like international organization uh, and so forth. So there are some, but my argument is really, and, I, and they do good work, but my argument is that there are uh, questions that we cannot answer using this kind of theory. One of the basic questions that uh, feminists ask is uh, <clears throat> why in the world today, in all countries, uh, do women uh, continue to be less uh, powerful than men? Uh, or in, in smaller numbers in international relations and foreign policy and so forth. I mean, if you, if you just take that as a question, uh, why is this the case? I sometimes use the United States because I know more about it. And in the United States, we have almost legal equality between women and men. Women got the vote 100 years ago. Um, and you'd think after 100 years of more or less equality, why is it that we have so few women uh, in our Congress, we've never had a woman president. Um, how do you explain that? You can't, you can't explain that by a scientific theory. You have to understand gender. And this is a very difficult concept to get across. When I'm talking about gender in this sense, I'm not just using it as an equivalent for women. Gender applies to both men and women. But gender is an identity. It's a, a construction of what it means, a social construction of what it means to be a man or to be a woman. It doesn't necessarily mean that all men behave in powerful, rational, these kinds of ways that we associate with masculinity, and certainly not all women behave um, as emotional, uh, less powerful, weak, and so forth. Uh, I'm not saying that, but I always find it interesting when I have taught undergraduates, I ask them if they can name what I would call masculine and feminine characteristics. They're very good at naming some of those ones that I just mentioned and some of others. And then I ask them, well, well do you uh, see yourself on one side of this? And they all say, oh no, it doesn't apply to me. But nevertheless, the fact that they can name these characteristics and put them almost in two columns um, suggests that this gender construction is very, very powerful. And it's, it's there, even though, um, it doesn't really fit the world entirely, but I think it explains a lot. Um, if you again using the United States, why have we never had a woman president candidate uh, president? Well, you know, whenever we have an election, we have to go through a big long discussion about <clears throat> whether a woman could be president. It was very interesting when we had uh, Hillary Clinton was running against uh, uh, Obama in, in the primary uh, a few years ago. 
and there was a big discussion about whether a black man could be president, whether a woman could be president, and and I I predicted it was going to be the man. But what was so interesting is why we have to have that discussion. Um, I said to my students one day during that uh, time period, I I asked them if uh, George Bush, who was also running, or I don't exactly remember the details, but I said, do you think George Bush as a white male, as a white heterosexual male is, uh, has the necessary qualities to be president? And they thought that was the most ridiculous thing. Um, why wouldn't he? And I said, well, you're asking the same questions about a black man and a woman. Um, so why do you have to ask those questions about them? For me, that is kind of the power of gender identity. And it helps explain a lot why we have not had a woman president, why they're underrepresented in our government, our business, uh, even though, as I said, they have more or less legal equality. You can't explain that uh, with uh, falsifiable scientific theories. You have to understand gender as an identity, which is subtle, but it makes a huge difference. Um, you know, we still have all these people saying something, oh, you know, women can't do that, she can't do that, and so forth. We need a strong man to do this. I mean, you still hear these things, and it's just not true but it's very powerful. It's improving vastly. Uh, I'm not saying that we stand still. I mean, since I, when I started in the field, I couldn't even have a credit card in my own name uh, uh, when I was married. So I'm just giving this example to show you how powerful gender is and how totally unexplainable it is by the sort of uh, theories uh, that international relations is, in, is captivated by. There are other ways of explaining. I've tried to give you one example of another way, but they're not seen as theory. Uh, constructivist theory is not seen as theory by international relations. In other fields, sociology, um, there are acceptance of multiple ways to understand things. It always seems to me that if you have a question you want answered, you don't immediately constrain yourself to a certain kind of theory. You say, what kind of theory could best help me explain or understand this question? And that seems to be very difficult for mainstream political science and international relations, certainly in the United States. I think it's somewhat better in other places. Thank you so much for taking us through that, Dr. Thigna. As a student of international relations myself, it's extremely insightful to hear about uh, why it's problematic to classify and theorize IR in a scientific way. Uh, from you especially, that was really wonderful. Thank you. So a lot of feminist theorists uh, have been calling for feminist IR theory to become a part of mainstream IR, even though the idea of a mainstream IR theory itself is problematic. And this continues to subsist both in theory and practice. So what do you think keeps this alive? 
Um, well, I don't think mainstream international relations thinks they have a problem. I think it's all the people who who don't find it useful that uh, they think ha has a problem. I think that the field has really narrowed in many ways. And I think that it's become more rigid, more commi committed to uh, the kind of positivist or neo-positive methodologies that it uses. But I don't think that practitioners of those kind of theories think, think they have a problem. They think that that's the way to understand the world. Um, they think that it's the rest of us who have a problem. I was once told by a, after I gave a talk by a uh, rather well-known uh, mainstream theorist, and he said, well, it's very interesting what you said, which you, you're not doing theory. And that's always the criticism that those of us who work uh, in different um, uh, epistemological traditions, we always get, what you're saying is interesting. I'm interested in, in women's issues, but you're not doing theory. And I've come across that question so many times, and I've written several articles in uh, mainstream journals trying to explain. I had one that's called, You Just Don't Understand. And then later, although I published the, my, my later one on that, I published in Australia, it seemed a little bit, uh, too much to do it here because I call it you'll never understand. But I it just doesn't it just doesn't get anywhere. I mean I, I don't think and I don't think I mean there are certain feminists who do use um uh mainstream scientific theories and that's fine, but I don't think that the rest of us want to or want to integrate in any way. And I think that there's so much good feminist work now every, all over the world, uh, not just in the US, that, that feminism has enough self-confidence now that it, it can just go on with the way it wants to do things. I, th I think we've really got past this kind of trying to fit in in some ways. I, I mean, I, I don't think it was ever right what we really need to do, particularly in the United States, is to accept, for mainstream people to accept, there are many different ways to do theory. That's also something that I've written a, a great deal about. And it doesn't bother me. I, I, as I said earlier, you have a problem, you want to understand it, pick a theory that works, but somehow, in the United States, the mainstream is very rigid and it just thinks there's only one way to explain things. And that certainly is not true, depending on what you're trying to explain. Thank you for articulating that, Dr. Dickner. And I think it, it does ring true for several things about India when I hear you say that the mainstream is rather rigid and seems unrelenting about a good many things. Uh, but it is in India too, isn't it? It is, it is, it certainly is. And it's really shocking because, you know, uh, mainstream, I mean, IR realism, which was kind of dominated post-World War II, mm -hmm. uh, I used to teach Hans Morgenthau's um, uh, power politics. And um, 
he, he Morgenthau was trying to explain something. I mean, in the real world, he was trying to lay out a foreign policy for the United States as being a very powerful country, how to succeed in the international system. And I used to teach uh, graduate students who came from all over the world, and I would ask them what they had read uh, in college, and they would always say Morgenthau. And I would say, well, does he apply to your country? Does it make any sense? And they would just generally say no, which is astonishing. But sadly, there's a lot of resources, and so it's it's got to you know much more literature, not not anymore, but it used to be the case that people from all over the world were reading Hans Morgenthau's talking about how to succeed as one of the most powerful countries in the world. It doesn't make any sense to anybody else. Absolutely, but, but on that note, and this leads me to the next question, which is, as a pioneer of bottom-up research in feminist IR, um, a lot of its practice still remains limited, um, but do you think this is probably because it's left to men in positions of privilege, or rather they took it? Well, um, bottom-up bottom research, um, I, I, I think I'm, I'm on a little uncomfortable with um, men in privilege. I think that the, when of course it was started by men with privilege and it's still probably much of it is governed by, you know, what's correct sort of comes out of the major uh, uh, institutions in the United States. And, you know, as I said before, it fills us down. What I would say about bottom-up research versus what I would call top-down, is that I think that um, feminists and mainstream IR people are working with a different ontology. Um, feminists see a world structured by gender, by the inequalities of gender structures, and those are the kinds of things they want to explain. They also want to understand what's the implications of international politics for ordinary people's lives. Um, there's a lot of feminist work on, uh, empirical work now on ordinary people's lives, domestic servants, military prostitution, all kinds of things. Feminists just are drawn to do research uh, that really demands field work to go and meet the people who are being in, influenced by um, the global economy or global politics. Um, so they kind of see a world of people uh, governed by social relations of inequality. The, the mainstream in general has been really working with a different ontology. Um, they have different questions. Again, I'm saying, using more for an example, he was trying to understand the behavior of states in an anarchical world where each state had to look out for itself uh, and maximize power as the only way uh, to be safe because he, uh, his assumption and many other um, realists do is that we 
We live in this world of states uh, with no, nothing above the states to prevent them from doing what they want to do. So and there is a lot of value in doing that, that kind of understanding. And, um, and, and Morgenthau was very involved in a roadmap for what the US should do um, in the post-war world. So it, it had a purpose. But it, it was a world of states, and that's really where mainstream international relations starts, understanding the behavior of states, suggesting how they might behave in order to succeed in an anarchical international system. Feminists just aren't doing, aren't asking those kind of questions. And so I, I don't sure it's it, they're privileged in the sense that they have the, uh, they seem to um, have very strong reach. I mean, you mentioned in India that uh, that kind of research is very uh, popular um, and well regarded. Um, <clears throat> so I, I think it's just, it, they do have a privileged space, but they, I don't know, they, why is why shouldn't we understand people's lives? I always used to say in, in mainstream international relations around any people at all. I don't know whether you've noticed that, but they they really don't have many people. It's all states and it's all the behavior of state um, and structures like the world economy. So, but feminists just are more interested in people's lives and the impact of. Uh, the global economy of the international system on actual people's lives. And that's just a totally, it's a different question, different ontology, um, different uh, ways of going about understanding. So, but it's just too bad that one is more privileged than the other. Absolutely. Thank you for elaborating on those differences, uh, Dr. Tickner. On that note, what has changed for women in international relations since 1988? Well, do you, are you talking about the discipline or the real world or both? Both. Okay. Well, certainly when you say women in international relations as a field, I've already, I've already said that, that, uh, women I think are doing pretty well, although I think probably the majority of them are still, uh, uh, you know, in, in the part-time jobs, and, you know, not with tenure. I mean, there are always disproportionate numbers of women in any field sort of uh, at the bottom, few full professors, although I really do think that's changing too. So I think women are doing, quite well in the discipline, as I've said, it's a little bit different when you come to feminists. But what I'm really struck by uh, is after 30 years of trying to get the mainstream to be more open to feminist work, what has really struck me is that I think that uh, the real world, the policy world has, is, is where uh, feminism has really caught on. I was very gratified to be told once by somebody who did some research on um, United Nations um, 
1325, which I explain in a minute, that um, they had actually uh, used one of my books um, as background. And that surprises me because I really write about theory and, but nevertheless, I think it has done better in some sense the policy war. I, I don't think that women have gotten a much better deal in the world. I mean, you know, poverty rates, unequal women do worse than men um, on most uh, indicators. Of course, it varies vastly by country. But nevertheless, I do think that the international community has begun to take women's issues seriously. Um, the implementation is going to be the problem. But I think since the um, uh, Beijing conference in 1995, and then you get after that, uh, the United Nations um, Security Council uh, passing what is called resolution, 1325, and that was a big stretch that took women many, many years to bring the Security Council, which is the, you know, the most difficult, I think, to deal with in terms of women's issues, uh, to vote for a resolution which suggested that women um, should have equal access to security making, um, to uh, being involved in peace treaties uh, and with, uh, and also with a, a special uh, recognition of gender-based violence. Since nine, um, 2000, when 1325 was passed, and it was certainly a momentous resolution, there have been, um, I don't know how many it is now, about nine or 10 further resolutions which together um, are called um, the Women in Women and Security uh, Program. <coughs> Excuse me, uh, Women. What is it? Uh, Women, Peace, and Security Program of the UN. Um, and so I think that the UN has been taking this seriously. They have asked each country to come up with their own national action plan as to how they are going to. Uh, introduce women into their security policies. Uh, the problem is the implementation, and it's very uneven. But when we have a country like Sweden, which about 10 years ago declared that it was going to follow a feminist foreign policy, that is really pretty astonishing uh, from 30 years ago. Uh, I asked some Swedish people about that, and they seemed to think that was fine. It wasn't something that they uh, found particularly troubling or difficult. I certainly can't imagine in the United States, and I don't, and I could imagine in India either, actually. I think the great powers are less on that. But um, you get countries like uh, Canada, which has also, um, really committed to a feminist foreign policy, although they didn't call it that, but a lot of uh, foreign aid going to women, uh, a lot of attention to gender-based violence. Um, Australia has done the same thing. I've spent quite a bit of time in Australia and um, the policymakers were very willing to listen to us. I was quite surprised when I gave talks or went to workshops 
there were always someone from the foreign ministry there, and they they really worked together with uh, feminist researchers uh, to develop um, uh, programs. So those strides are enormous. The counter argument is it's all in the implementation, um, but there have been some successes. There have been some empirical studies done that show that if women have equal number of seats at a peace negotiation table, that the peace agreement is more likely to last. And this has been documented. There haven't been many, but it has been documented that it actually makes a difference to the peace agreement if women are present. So we have all these these really heartening things that are going on and um, of course we don't hear about them very much but I am really quite surprised how how strongly the um, uh, the international community has taken this seriously. I once told some young women who and this was not under a present administration of course but it was when Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State and they were going to work at the State Department. And they said that Clinton had mandated that gender had to be taken into account in every department in the State Department. And they said, oh, uh, we wish we'd learned more about it in college. Because, uh, you know, they saw me and they knew who I was. But that's what is so shocking. It's so difficult in the United States to get courses on gender uh, taught and yet uh, when women go and work for these organizations it's it's that they need it they they're asked if they understand what it means it's so i think the policy world has really done quite well um as i say a long way to go before the implementation but you have to start somewhere that is absolutely true, Dr. Digna. I, I really understand and accept the fact that we have to start somewhere, even if it means there's a long way ahead before we see the implementation. And yet, even as we have all these gains, there are certain areas that continue to remain overtly masculine and inflexible. Um, what, what areas do you see the discourse being this way, even now in the space of IR? Well, I think certainly in the security field, I think that's been the toughest one uh, to crack. And it was interesting, a lot of feminist work, and I'm now talking again about feminist work as opposed to all women, um, stayed, stayed clear of conventionals dealing with security issues. That has changed recently, and now there's a huge amount of feminist work on war and security and so forth. Um, and there have been some efforts uh, to try to talk to the mainstream security specialists, but that has been very, very difficult. And I think it's still seen uh, very much as a masculine field, um, <clears throat> certainly in the United States. You know, the big guys uh, deal with the real stuff, you know. It's like why I said earlier that I think uh, <clears throat> war and peace are completely gendered, you know, the big guys deal with the real stuff and security studies, which is certainly still right at the top of 
you know, the most privileged um, field, I think. And peace studies is, which I find astonishing. It's just, it just struggles. And uh, so I, I think I would say uh, security studies. I mean, I consider myself to do security studies, but I wouldn't be considered by the mainstream that I do. I, you know, I def I define security in a broad way, a multi-dimensional way, and uh, you know, don't just talk about uh, political security, but talk about economic security and ecological security. That's I've I've used security when I've written about it, <clears throat> but that's very different, and that's not what the mainstream security people really think they're doing. It got a big push after in the United States after the um, attack, um, the 9/11 attack. Uh, you know, suddenly security studies became very important again, and people studying studying terrorism and you know just sort of back where we were, which is rather depressing because I think before that there was more openness in the field. Uh, to looking at other issues. <clears throat> Completely agree with you on that, Dr. Tigna. And it's so unfortunate that security studies remain so narrowly defined, both in policy and theory sometimes. So finally, we'd like to ask you, what would your advice be to young women who hope to pursue a career in international relations? Well, it depends whether you mean an academic career or a policy career. Uh, certainly, the academy right now isn't doing very well in anything that's mainly due to COVID. Um, so, you know, certainly in the United States, thinking of a career in academia is 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 tough now because universities are suffering, they're losing money, they're not hiring, and so forth. But I think there are lots of opportunities for young women to do uh, international relations in some way or other. I think the most important thing is that you should follow your passion. I always did something that was a little out of the box uh, right from the start. My dissertation was completely out of the box. And, you know, I did a case study of um, uh, post-independence India and uh, early United States history. And that was, and then I had chapters on Gandhi and um, Nero, Thomas Jefferson. So it was, it was all, I've always been out of the box, and I, but I've enjoyed so much what I've done. And I think it's really important to follow your passion. But I think a lot of the interesting work now would be in the policy world, uh, in think tanks perhaps, and hopefully uh, in academia when we get back to a state where uh, universities are hiring again. I don't know whether that's true in India, but uh, universities have taken a big hit here with COVID, so it's a rather unusual time for me to just try to follow your academic passion, but it's worth it. Uh, do what you want, do what you enjoy, and it'll work out. Don't don't try to fit into what somebody else thinks you ought to do because 
you're you're not going to be motivated by it. Your heart's not going to be in it, and it's just not going to work out. But there's lots of opportunities. Thank thank you for those powerful words of advice. And on that note, Dr. Tickner, thank you so much for being with us on the Feminifesto podcast. Uh, we've been reading your works and learning about feminist security studies from you for many years now, and it's truly such an honor that we were able to speak about your career and your journey with you in person. And you're one of Keithy's and mine's uh, sheroes, and we're so grateful for everything that you've contributed to the discipline and for paving the path for so many women to come in after you. I'm I'm really confident that our listeners will be left as uh, starstruck and awe inspired as we are after listening to this episode. So thank you so much. Well, I really enjoyed doing it. It was wonderful, and I. I I would also, maybe you have my um, last book, it's not new now, but A Feminist Voyage Through International Relations. It, it, I take some, some of the articles that I've written at all stages of my career and, um, and put it together in a book with an introduction about how I got to where I am. So, so you know, it's a good book to sort of see what I've, you know, how my thinking has evolved. Now I'm doing kind of crazy stuff like, you know, post-colonial stuff. <laughs> Given I'm worrying about the mainstream. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed that. Thank you.